You are listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 3, Episode 2. Hi, welcome back to Bonafide Needs. I'm Bill Olver, Managing Editor of the PubK Group. Every year, Congress takes up the National Defense Authorization Act, which sets out budget and policy priorities for the Department of Defense. This bill is one of very few pieces of legislation that must pass every year. Congress voted to approve the fiscal year 2024 bill in December. Joining me today to discuss the passage of the bill and some important policy considerations for defense contractors are some defense and policy experts from Arnold and Porter, Chuck Blanchard, Adrian Jackson, and Yuvaraj Sivalingam. Chuck, Adrian, and Yuvaraj, welcome to the podcast. Let's take a moment to introduce you to our listeners. I am Chuck Blanchard. I'm a senior counsel in the government contracts and national security practice here at Arnold and Porter. Hello, everyone. I'm Yuvara Sivalingam, policy advisor uh, with Arnold and Porter's legislative and public policy practice. Hi, this is Adrian Jackson. I'm a lobbyist in Arnold and Porter's legislative and public policy practice. Thanks. So what is the status of our NDAA? Where do we stand with Congress? Yeah, um, well, for the 63rd year in a row, Congress passed the National Defense Authorization Act, the annual defense policy bill that has really become the only true must-pass piece of legislation in Congress anymore. This NDAA, the FY24 NDAA, supports a total of $883.7 billion for the Department of Defense and related defense programs. In December, the final bill was agreed to by a vote of 87 to 13 in the Senate, so a pretty bipartisan vote there. And then um, by a vote of 219 to 210 in the House. The House vote was um, largely passed by House Democrats after Republican personnel priorities that were on the more controversial side were stripped ultimately from the final text. And we'll get into, I know Yuvaraj is going to talk about a bit more about that um, as we go along. But that being said, Congress has yet to pass the appropriations to back up that $883 billion authorization. Um, And we continue to operate under FY23 numbers for the Department of Defense, um, which I know Chuck knows very well is uh, much to their detriment uh, to operate under CRs. It seems like actually as we are speaking now, Uh, Congress is setting themselves up to pass another short-term stopgap measure into March. So we will be well into uh, fiscal year 24 before hopefully passing uh, an appropriations bill. Chuck, Yuvaraj, did you want to add anything to that? I just want to footstomp on the importance of operating under a a CR, even with a past NDAA. Um, You know, the, the biggest problem for the Department of Defense is it can't do what are called new starts or new programs unless it's, a, it's actually appropriated. And at a time when we're facing increasing threats from China and Russia and all three, all our, I say all, all five uh, military forces are working hard to reform the way they, they operate on the battlefield, uh, the lack of new starts is going to have a huge 
detrimental effect and it's going to delay badly needed weapon systems. Yes, and just to echo what Adrian and, and, and Chuck have, have said, again, you know, the NDA is a policy and authorization bill. It does not actually fund these programs. So anything new, the department can't actually start until appropriations bill is actually passed and signed into law. So what are some key takeaways in the final text of the bill this year? Well, as Chuck just mentioned briefly, uh, we continue to see Congress focus on strategic competition with United States adversaries, um, including Russia and China and Iran and North Korea. They are doing this by strengthening the defense industrial base through provisions and American competitiveness writ large. Within the FY24 NDAA, this led to provisions including a requirement that companies providing consulting services to the DOD make certifications regarding potential conflicts of interest involving covered foreign entities, including the Chinese and Russian governments. This was, I'll, I'll get in more to it later, but this was a really big provision in the Senate and the House that required a lot of negotiation as there were, I'm sure you can imagine many companies very interested in what that final text was going to look like. Um, there was also a prohibition on the use of DOD funds to procure batteries produced by certain entities and the new American Security Drone Act of 2023 that, among other things, prohibits the procurement of any covered unmanned aircraft system that is manufactured by a covered foreign entity. The NDA also includes several uh, by American provisions uh, that actually cut both ways. Uh, one provision focuses once again on critical minerals and orders the Department of Defense to examine what they're going to do to make sure that we're not reliant on critical minerals from our adversaries and to try to get more domestic production. In addition, uh, consistent with the Biden administration initiatives, it increases the domestic content requirements for major defense acquisition programs uh, that are not otherwise subject to uh, trade agreements with our partners. And finally, going in the other direction on specialty metals, it expands slightly the um, the exception for specialty metals that are created by our trade uh, agreement partners by allowing um, mill products that are incorporated in a, in a component to be uh, imported, not manufactured in the United States. And Related to that, sort of sticking with a similar theme of supply chain and critical minerals and critical technologies, there's also a provision in the NDAA that authorizes a multi-year procurement for domestically processed critical minerals. It's not often the case that Congress will authorize multi-year procurement, but I think that just underscores the seriousness with which the legislature is taking the issue of uh, having critical mineral independence from some of these covered countries. The NDAA also creates a pilot program for the National Security Agency's Cybersecurity Collaboration Center to improve the cybersecurity of the supply chain for the design, manufacture, uh, assembly, and testing uh, of these semiconductors and other related uh, technologies. Additionally, we continue to see Congress invest in future generation technologies such as AI, cyber, and quantum. Truly, as we race towards these technologies against China, we're going to continue to see um, 
pretty robust funding go towards that RD T&E for those. And then with that, uh, I guess we can talk about what was left out. Senators Cornyn and Casey were able to include their outbound investment language as an amendment to the Senate NDAA, um, but ultimately this language was stripped from the final text. We have heard recently that the House and the Senate are negotiating the, the differences between this text and a proposal from House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman and Ranking Member Congressman McCall and Meeks, which both sides genuinely hope to build upon President Biden's executive order on addressing U.S. investments in certain national security technologies and products in countries of concern. I think that we could see that the eventual negotiations come into a final bill um, that could pass as a standalone or some other vehicle or potentially the fiscal year 25 in DAA. Uh, a couple of other provisions that I would highlight as being notable for their removal or being left out. First is a bid protest provision um, that was included in the House passed NDA last summer. And that provision would enable the department to seek reimbursements for costs incurred from a contract award protest that were ultimately denied. Uh, so that did not make it into the final package. Uh, and another uh, that I want to highlight is a provision that would effectively streamline federal permitting and environmental reviews uh, for certain facilities and manufacturing plants for the purposes for the purpose of semiconductor manufacturing under the CHIPS Act. So the, the CHIPS Act enacted in 2021 uh, has done quite a lot for uh, generating new investment in semiconductors and electric technologies. All of those related projects often require uh, environmental reviews and often case those reviews take quite a bit of time. So this provision was intended to streamline that process. However, uh, the provision was stripped out of the final package. Every year, the NDAA includes a lot of contracting language that industry needs to be aware of. Uh, you already mentioned some restrictions on business with our adversaries. So uh, what else did we see this year and what should industry be ready for? Well, uh, you know, there are several provisions that focused in on prohibitions on contracting with companies that have a relationship to China, Russia, or other countries of concern. So, for example, Section 805 prohibits DOD procurement from entities uh, that are identified as Chinese military companies. And uh, this is sort of a falls on some previous provisions as well, which is a, you know, a, a good example of the, the kind of focus on making sure that as we, as companies procure, they need to start being very concerned about the supply chain to make sure they're not buying from prohibited companies. A couple other contracting and procurement related provisions that I would highlight. Uh, the first is uh, Section 809. This would establish a pilot program uh, toward DOD contracts for anything as a service solution. So anything as a service is a broad general category, tools, applications, uh, services, et cetera, which are delivered uh, via the cloud as opposed to a physical on-site hardwired format. Uh, so you may be familiar with terms like software as a service or platform as, as a service solutions. All of these can be considered under the broad category of anything 
as a service now of this pilot program, the department may award contracts for solutions that the department could benefit from. And the uh, appeal of these solutions uh, delivered by the cloud is that it could reduce costs while also increasing flexibility for some much needed tools that are often also commercially available. Uh, another I'll mention is section 813. Um, this uh, actually uh, enhances an already existing authority that uh, the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of the War Departments already have uh, to acquire innovative uh, commercial products and services through a competitive selection of proposals. What this new provision actually does is require the department to exercise this authority at least four times per fiscal year. So the Congress has essentially said that the department should be using this authority more often, now requiring a, essentially a, a floor to the number of times it should be used each fiscal year. There was a sunset, however, this authority will lapse on September 30th of 2027. Another contract provision that I'll, that I'll mention of the category of several small businesses contracting provisions. The first is section 862, which refers to the payment of subcontractors. In, in, in short, uh, what this provision does is if the contracting officer at the department becomes aware that a subcontractor is not receiving payment in full and on time from its prime contractor, the department may may intervene and require the prime contractor to essentially make the subcontractor whole in a timely manner. So uh, this appears to be putting an emphasis on uh, ensuring that subcontractors are getting the payment for their services in a timely manner. Another section 863 would increase the government's goal for the participation of services able veteran-owned small businesses in federal contracting, the current target is 3%, that will be increased to 5%. And the last one I'll mention here, Section 864, this eliminates the self-certification of service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses and now requires the administrator to certify all such small businesses. Already self-certified small businesses of that category can apply uh, within a year and then maintain that self-certification until the administrator uh, makes a determination. If you do not do that within a year, then that whole business will lose its uh, certification. Thanks you, Varash. I touched on this earlier, but included in the final NDAA was a provision that seeks to prevent conflicts of interest for consulting firms that work with the DOD. Uh, this landed in Section 812 of the final bill and specifically requires that the SECDEF amend the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement to require the companies to certify that neither the company nor any of its subsidiaries holds a consulting services contract with covered foreign entities, including China, or the company maintains an auditable conflict of interest and mitigation plan. That plan must identify any covered foreign entity that the company provides services to, a written course of action for avoiding or mitigating the actual or potential conflict of interest with DOD, and other related information. I don't want to speak for the Armed Services Committee staff, but I believe that this was really focused in on McKenzie, BCG, and uh, those consulting firms that 
are able to um, work with U.S. agencies while also simultaneously working for these governments. I know there's been a lot of continued interest in that with some reporting that has been um, released in the last two years or so on it. And then lastly, Section 825 of the final bill targets logistics information technologies affiliated with China. It prohibits DOD from contracting with entities that provide data to covered logistics platforms, which includes the National Transportation and Logistics Public Information Platform provided by the Chinese government also includes other national logistics platforms affiliated with them. And then second, covered entities, including federally funded port authorities at seaports, federal and state agencies, et cetera, that accept federal grant funding are prohibited from using such a covered logistics platform. There's actually one other provision that I, I would like to, to mention as well, um, and you listeners may recall when we spoke about the House and Senate versions of the bill last summer, um, that both versions of the NDAA did include provisions that had to do with greenhouse gas emissions disclosures uh, as a condition of awarding contracts. The Senate version of that language went out at the end of the day. So the final NDEA does include uh, a prohibition on requiring disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions on non-traditional defense contractors, so these are typically the smaller contractors, and it also extends a prohibition to all other contractors, including the big primes, for one year after the enactment of the NDAA. Having said all of that, there is a caveat in this provision that allows the secretary to essentially require the disclosure of those emissions if the entity or the applying contractor has made some public claims about their emissions, the secretary may then require the disclosure in order to verify uh, those claims. Great. So um, emerging technologies are a hot topic across this sector, uh, even going up all the way to the White House. So what does the NDAA say about these technologies and the, the roles and opportunities that might be there for the private sector? Thanks, Bill. Yeah, as I mentioned before, we're going to continue to see investment from Congress and directives from Congress for the DOD to focus on these next generation technologies, emerging technologies such as AI, quantum, and and cyber. For the FY24 NDAA, it authorized increased funding for a number of these kinds of initiatives, including a distributed quantum networking testbed, development of a next generation ion trap quantum computer. Not that I know what that means at all. At the Air Force Research Lab, expansion of the National Security Innovation Networks activities, R&D of intelligent autonomous systems for seabed warfare. And then it also required a feasibility report to establish a quantum computing innovation center within the Department of Defense. I'm sure uh, once that gets off the ground, we'll see the DOD working as it typically does with uh, higher education um, universities, um, with the private sector. And each of these really are opportunities for private sector and contracting industry to further its engagement in RD, T&E with the Department of Defense. I think that companies in these emerging technology areas are certainly not going to suffer from a lack of partnership opportunities with DOD in the coming years as Congress looks to ensure that 
the warfighter is ready for the next generation. The bill also authorizes an AI bug bounty program for DOD, establishes a prize competition for technology that detects and watermarks use of generative AI, and directs a study analyzing the vulnerabilities to the privacy, security, accuracy, and capacity of AI-enabled military applications, as well as R&D needs for such applications. Like I mentioned before, I think um, we're truly in a race to some of these technologies with China, and um, a lot of focus is going to continue being put on these efforts. In the last couple of years as well, we've seen some significant new investment bills out of Congress, and those have all included domestic sourcing or Buy America requirements. So how is the um, how does the NDA expand on those and what kind of Buy America provisions are included? I, I think the NDAA is uh, here is is less aggressive than we've seen recently from Congress on domestic preferences. You know the one the one exception is Section 835, which establishes a new domestic content requirement for major DoD uh, programs by increasing it from 60% of the cost has to be domestic to 75% in 2029. But even this provision is in the grand scheme of things fairly modest because it does not apply to countries that are for whom we have trade agreements. So most of our European allies, for example, uh, would not be subject to these domestic preference requirements. But for the ones that are, and those would tend to be in the kind of um, purchases of commodities that are not ma- manufactured uh, by major defense contractors, you know, it, th- this would apply. And then it makes a, what, I, what I view as a sort of technical amendment to the specialty metals. Specialty metals provisions largely requires that specialty metals that are used in defense systems be manufactured or milled in the United States. And again, there's an exception, an existing law for countries for milling of metals is done in our uh, treaty allies. This expands that somewhat by saying that even a, a component can have specialty metals that are manufactured or milled in another country as long as the mill product or component was procured um, in a country for whom the U.S. has a trade agreement. So that's sort of a a technical amendment that tries to make sure that our domestic preference laws comply with our U.S. US treaty requirements. And and in recent years, it's been a big focus on uh, rare earths and critical minerals, because uh, we are discovering that a lot of our minerals are actually uh, controlled by China, which is a huge national security threat. Uh, rare earths in the past, there's now a requirement that we find uh, non-Chinese uh, sources of the rare earths. Section 1414 of this NDAA applies the same sort of approach to other critical minerals by requiring that the uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment within a year uh, produce a strategy for the development of the supply chain for critical metals for DOD outside of covered uh, countries such as China, Iran, North Korea, and Russia uh, in order to ensure that we have critical uh, mineral supply uh, that's independent. So this is not a domestic preference, but it is trying to make sure that we have um, sources in in more friendly countries. Great. 
Great. So looking ahead, what might Congress want to achieve next year with the fiscal year 2025 NDA? It's never too early to start uh, speculating. So when can we expect that process to kick off? Yeah, that is a great question. I have not heard from the Hill just yet on this topic, but in previous years, even though the NDAA is a defense policy and authorization bill, we have seen a delay in years when the president's budget has been delayed. And we've also seen a president's budget delay when um, there's an appropriations delay. So typically the president's budget is released in the first week of February. And given that that's, let's say, two weeks away, I'm not sure we're going to see that. So typically it would be February, March. We start to see the Senate and House Armed Services Committees draft the first versions of the NDAA. I'm not sure when that process will truly kick off. Uh, but once it does, we'll also see the annual hearings in front of the SASC and HASC, and then committee markups and floor activity, and then hopefully final passage. I do continue to believe in this bill. Uh, 63 years of passage um, has to mean something. Even though it is an election year, they will the Congress will be out for all of August, all of October as they campaign. And we also are seeing an uh, ever slimming majority in the House as people retire. And it was already a pretty tight majority, too. Um, so I think there's a lot of dynamics and it's going to be a tricky year. But I do I do think it will eventually get passed just when when that kicks off. Um, not at this time too sure. But Chuck, you, Raj, you guys, please feel free to correct me. No, I think, Adrian, I think you're you're spot on in terms of the timeline considerations and the impact of the election year. And just think about specific sort of uh, election year driven policy writers that found their way into the NDA in this past cycle are likely to uh, come up again, perhaps with a bit more fervor behind them, given that it is a presidential election year. So I'm talking about topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, Ukraine special inspector general provisions, vaccinations, uh, transgender care, reproductive health care, all, all of the things that some members want to make hay out of in their campaigns. Uh, and while those provisions were were stripped out before the conclusion of this past NDAA cycle, it, it, it's possible that some of them may slip in this year. Actually, I should say more, more, more accurately, there'll be likely more of a desire from supporters of those provisions to get them in this year, given that it is an election year and the outcome of the November election may have an impact in the final conference. And I mentioned that in terms of the timeline because you may see a House and Senate version deliberated and passed in the summer, like we've seen in the last several years. The conference report often doesn't come now until December. And if that's the case this year, you may see the election result influencing what provisions actually do make it into the final NDAA. And you may see the election uh, giving uh, some folks in the House majority uh, perhaps a bit more uh, leverage in, in the negotiations that happen during conference. But Chuck, tell me if I have that all wrong. No, I think you're right. I think the other thing I would, the, the history of the NDAA is we have perennial issues that just don't go away. And so I think we can protect the future by looking at the past. And one example is the big protest issues. There's, there's a group of people that are really hot on this idea of loser pay. Uh, I think they're going to make another effort next year. I don't think it will succeed, 
but it, it's going to be a, a live issue. Um, I think I think there are also brewing issues of concern on the Hill that may result in activity on the Hill. A, a good example being there's growing concern about our inability to build and maintain ships. That's reaching a crisis stage right now. And I would not be surprised if Congress didn't try to take some serious action, probably a study committee or a, or a requirement of a strategy. Um, but I but I do think that the uh, our inability to make and, and maintain ships is reaching a stage where I think future NDAs are going to uh, start to focus on that. Uh, and then and then, you know, I think there's um, uh, the politics of defense is very interesting. Because right now, you've got budget hawks on the right in the Republican Party who would be fine with a defense cut, as long as it's part of, a, of an overall cut. That They are more concerned about the deficit than they are in the defense budget. And then you've got a growing number of progressives in the Democratic Party who would love to see defense cuts to fund domestic programs. And by and large, so far, the center has held. The Democrats who, uh, who support uh, robust defense and the Republican um, hawks uh, who support a robust defense. So far, they've won. But I think this is going to become a growing issue. And I think the Ukraine is sort of the tip of this, because even though we have an NDAA, we don't have a defense budget that's actually passed, as we've discussed. And we're still talking about a supplemental for Ukraine, Israel, and the border. And if that does not pass soon, there'll be serious consequences for the war in Ukraine uh, and U.S. interests there. And so I think that's an example of, of, of a very hot, a hot issue um, we will face. And then finally, I think there, there will probably be initiatives that will come from the Biden administration. So, for example, um, there's rumors that the Air Force wants to restructure itself to get away from the major command structure. And so I don't know if they're going to do that in an election year, but they may very well make an effort to move away from the, the current way the Air Force is organized. In addition, it's about time to, to start uh, the development process for the next generation fighter. There's already been some activity in that area, but I, I would not be surprised if we didn't see more robust authorizations for a new fighter program. Uh, it won't start procuring something, it won't actually buy it, but there will probably be a more intensive effort in developing the requirements for what the next generation fighter would look like. Thanks, Chuck. That's all the time we have for this episode. Uh, Adrian, Chuck, and you, Raj, thank you again for joining me today and breaking down the NDAA for our listeners. It's great to have you back on the podcast. And as the process unfolds, hopefully we can bring you back again to discuss the 2025 NDAA. Sounds great. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks again to Chuck, Adrian, and Yuvaraj for that analysis of this year's NDAA. And that's it for this episode of Bonafide Needs. To keep up with government contracting and legal developments every day, subscribe to PubK at pubkgroup.com. For additional expert analysis and insights, you can find multiple timely and informative blogs at arnoldporter.com. Thanks for listening. You can find Bonafide Needs on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and YouTube. You can help us reach more listeners by liking, subscribing, or leaving a review. For Arnold and Porter and the PubK Group, this is Bill Olver. Until next time. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright 
Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the Pub K Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Bill Olfer and Tina Chen.